The Sacred Changemakers podcast is supported by Coaches Business School, helping the world's most caring coaches build a purpose-driven and profitable business that makes a meaningful impact in our world. Check out their unique frameworks and methods to help you transform and grow your business. Now is the time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs. You can do well in business and do good, and together we can make a meaningful difference. Find out more at coachesbusinessschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Sacred Changemakers podcast. Now, our guest on the podcast today is Rennie Gabriel. After two divorces and a business failure, Rennie went from being completely broke at age 50 to becoming a multimillionaire after learning the secrets of the wealthy, even though he failed high school math, as he says. And he now donates 100% of the profits from his online programs to rescue dogs and veteran soldiers. And his award-winning best-selling book called Wealth on Any Income has been translated into eight languages around the world. Now, I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation because I suspect that there are so many of us who can benefit from a grounded conversation about money because it can be such an emotional topic for us to discuss and to think about, never mind begin to get intentional about the money that is moving and flowing through our lives. Now, I loved this conversation and I found it incredibly enriching. And what I noticed is how easy Rennie feels about this topic, how his his guidance is grounded in like a practical everyday reality. And he's sharing in this conversation tools and and tips that are really valuable to help you manage your money better. And with inflation rising as it is right now, you know, the cost of living is going up for all of us. And if you're struggling to survive financially, Rennie might just be the person to help you dig yourself out of the hole and kind of get back to solid ground. So it feels really valuable, the message that he's bringing. And we are talking about today how to create wealth on any income. And what I loved personally was kind of the energy underneath Rennie's words. Like he brings this message of hope and he has this unwavering confidence that no matter who you are or what you've been through in the past or where you find yourself right now financially, you can begin to make a difference and build your wealth on any income at all. So maybe, maybe it's time to change the way you think about money. And if that's true for you, I think Rennie can help. So let's shift to the conversation. Hey, Renee, welcome to the Sacred Changemakers podcast. So excited you're here. Oh, thank you, Jane. It's my pleasure. You know, our audience have just heard your professional bio, and I'd love to get a sense of the real life human that lies behind that. So why don't you walk us through that? Who is he? Um, well, it's it's someone who's embarrassed about how he arrived at where he is. Okay. That's an interesting way to describe it. Okay. So do tell us more. <laughs> well, it, the reality is I was trained as a certified financial planner. Um, I had also a chartered life underwriter license. So I'd been immersed in money 
for my early career for over a quarter century. And during that time, struggled with money on a daily basis. Right. And, and it finally dawned on me that none of us are taught how to handle money in any practical way, in any powerful way. And I can't blame anybody. I mean, parents can't teach what they don't know. But it's also sad, too, because the teachers can't teach what they've never been taught. And, and it gets worse because the people you would turn to for financial support, whether it's your CPA or maybe it's a financial planner. Now, like I said, I'm cert I was certified as a financial planner, but how to do the foundational things, the, the basics, like doing a budget or a spending plan is not in my coursework. And then when I, and I used to own a pension administration company, designing uh, retirement plans, profit sharing plans for companies. Uh, generally, they were small owners who had two, three, five, 10, or 50 employees. And all of our business came as referrals from CPAs. And so I would interview CPAs and ask them, in your coursework, were you taught how to teach your clients how to do a budget or a spending plan or any of that? And they said, no. And I realized there were CPAs who learned how to do this for themselves. And there were other CPAs I helped through bankruptcy because they knew how to do tax returns, but they still didn't know how to handle money. Right. And so I realized I'm not alone. And that is what led to my writing the book, Wealth on Any Income. That's what led me to continue searching and finding the answers that I needed. And ultimately, uh, I lucked out and decided to model what wealthy people were doing. And I'd also finally gotten the mindset, uh, and I'll tell you where that is if you ask, um, <laughs> But, you know, by the time I was 50, I was, I was broke. I had two divorces. I had a business failure and I was starting over from scratch, but I was able to use all the tools that I had learned uh, along the way, even though I'd gone broke from the divorces and literally within eight years uh, became a multimillionaire and no longer had to work for a living. And, and my goal which was so funny at 50, I said, okay, I'm broke. I'm starting over in 15 years, typical retirement age, 65. I said, I, I don't want to be eating cat food. I'd rather be having tuna. <laughs> I, and so that was one of the major impetus behind uh, my starting to really get stuff into action. So at age 50, you know, people think, oh, it's all over. No, it's never too late. And I've got clients who are in their 60s and 70s who are creating what they thought they never could. Wow. So I love how you've taken this into a personal space because despite the fact that you had some professional training in money, what you're sharing with us is that despite that, even at the age of 50, you know, you found yourself like poor and broke. So this is something that's really interesting to me is that, you know, the, this realization you had around the fact that we're not equipped 
really to understand money in our lives. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about right now, but let's just start with like, what are we missing here? What did you find that we don't know yet? (laughs) And we Uh, need to know. (laughs) Yeah. One of the simplest things um, is, well, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll do it as an analogy first. Yeah. Um, Let's say that um, you fell into a swimming pool and you did not know how to swim when you fell in. And if I said to you, Jane, swim, would that help you? No. (laughs) Exactly. But that's what happens when we have conversations around money. And I've heard CPAs say this to their clients when they don't know how to handle money, they'll say, you need to budget. That's the same thing as telling a drowning person they need to swim. Telling them they need to budget doesn't provide instructions. It's nothing more than an admonition, like you're bad and you've been given no instructions. So the foundational things that are missing is how to do a budget. And I finally figured that out (laughs) Um, I figured it out because of a 12-step program called Debtors Anonymous. Mm. That's where I learned how to do a budget. And one of the important things that I learned, and this gets back to my analogy, you know, a parent might tell a child or a CPA says, you need to live on less than you earn. Nice concept, again, no instructions. And what I discovered in this 12-step program was how to live on less than I was earning. And what I'm getting at is, if you focus on your expenses first, and right now, you know, I I know you're going to be broadcasting this, I think you said in August, and it's very likely we're still going to be facing horrible inflation. Uh, right now, gasoline in California is over $7 a gallon. Wow. So people like my gardener or other people, they are really struggling because of the expenses. And that is the crucial key is to focus on reducing expenses first and then increasing income. Now, a lot of employees don't have that opportunity because they're getting a paycheck. But the people like coaches, like authors, like corporate trainers, like professionals, doctors, dentists, um, accountants, they have control over their income. And so when I talk about first look at reducing your expenses and then second, increasing your income. Those are the people who have the structure in their profession. They can do that. Mm. You know, for an employee, it's another story. It's even more important to look at their expenses because their income is not likely to change much. Right. It's so interesting listening to you in that way, because I I just felt myself exhale a little bit. (laughs) I don't know why, but as you were saying that, you know, living, because it's really living within your means is understanding that, you know, you, you start with costs and then you move to expand the thing. There's another thing coming up for me as I, as I'm listening to you, which is for me, that feels like an external way of thinking about money. 
And here's what I get a sense of for myself and also with, with some clients that I work with is that money feels very intimate. There's something about inside of us. I don't know whether it's the structures we've created in life or what it is, but somehow we tie money to power. We tie money to value and whether I'm worthy. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this emotional game as well as just like, you know, very rationally dealing with the profit and loss or the, the costs versus what's coming in. And, you know, there's this, I don't know how to describe it, but it feels like it's at the very heart of what stops a lot of us really building a, a, a productive and a good relationship with money. There's two things that you're talking about here. And one of them is identity hmm. and how we identify who we are based on how much money we're making yes. or accumulating. And the second thing is embarrassment. Hmm. Unfortunately, most children, if they bring up the topic of money to their parents, their parents will say, that is not something you should talk about. We don't talk about money. That's rude. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? Wealthy people talk about money. Right. They talk about their profit margin in their business. They talk about what they're paying their employees. They talk about the investments that they're making. Um, Wealthy people are not embarrassed to talk about money, right. but poor people are. That, that I can't quite figure <laughs> out. But the point is, it, it's those two things. It's identity and embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a parent who feels they should be doing better and they're not going to share their feelings with their child. So they just tell them that talking about money is rude. Mm -hmm. and, and here's here's what happens. And this, I talk about this in my TEDx talk. We are programmed to believe it's better to be poor than to be wealthy. Wow. And if you, and, and okay, I'm going to back that up. The fairy tale, Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack is poor and the giant up in the clouds is rich or wealthy. He's got a golden goose. He's got a singing harp and the goose is laying these golden eggs, you know, all that stuff. Well, Jack goes and steals the eggs. He steals the goose. He steals the, the singing harp. The giant chases him. He chops down the, the beanstalk and the giant falls to his death. Now, most people say, and this is what we're taught. The moral of the story is Jack took advantage of the opportunities presented. The hidden moral is it's okay to be poor. And if you kill rich people, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Think about it. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to kill wealthy people if you're poor. Right. And if you look at... Um, Books by Charles Dickens. It's the poor people who are good. If you look at movies, Hollywood movies that were influenced by, like Titanic, you got Jack who's living in the bowels of the ship, but he's happy. They're dancing, they're partying. And Mary, who's up in the penthouse part of the ship with her disgusting fiance, he doesn't look like he's happy. She doesn't look like he's happy. 
And so she falls in love with Jack, who's happy and he's poor. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Jimmy Stewart, and It's a Wonderful Life. You can go on and on. And we're influenced by Hollywood movies that show you the poor people are happy and the rich people are miserable or they're disgusting. You know, it's interesting. I've never thought of it in that way. And yet there's a, it feels like there's a paradox here because... Yes, I, I get that subliminally in the culture, we're being taught all these things at an identity level that money is bad. And I've seen this play out in my own life and in the lives of my clients. Money is bad and I, I can't have money and be good and do good in the world. It's like this polarity that presents itself. However, it doesn't stop us chasing it, does it? Because <laughs> we're surrounded by marketing that tells us we're less than if we don't have X, Y, Z. So yes. there's this, there's like all these different messages around money and all of them feel dysfunctional in their own way. And like, I don't know, I don't know other than you where to go for like real, like the reality of money, the reality of building wealth in my life it shows up when you are awake to what you said the subliminal messages that we're getting yeah. madison avenue is not your friend when it comes to making <laughs> you happy in other words it they're designed to take your money away in other words if you drink the proper the right beer you'll have women are fawning over you. Now, I, Jane, I don't know that you want women <laughs> fawning over you. Well, you know, I don't care really. Anybody <laughs> fawning would be nice occasionally. Okay. But, but you get where I'm getting. If you use the right toothpaste, your husband will love you. If you're yes. driving the right car, strangers will care about who you are. And these are all lies perpetrated by Madison Avenue for the purpose of taking your money away from you and giving it to someone else. And yeah. until we become awake to the subliminal messages that we got from our culture, from our parents, from Hollywood movies, and even from the scripture, you've heard, maybe you've heard the expression, a camel can pass through the eye of a needle easier than a rich man can get into heaven. Right. It doesn't matter where you're looking. You're being told it's better to be poor. And guess what? The Catholic church gets a lot of money from poor people. Mm. Now, supposedly they also help poor people, but the point is it's about giving, it's about tithing, it's about, you know, because we do good, give us more and more money. And if you need to, we will take care of you. But until you're awake to those messages, you can't make decisions for yourself. Now, I'm in a unique situation. Because of what I learned about money, because of the wealth that I created, I'm able to donate 100% of the profits from the work I do helping other people understand money. I donate to various animal and veteran charities. Now, I'm in a unique position. I don't need any of the money from the work I'm generating because I learned how to create investments that support me so I don't have to work for a living. I have a choice of working instead of being of having to work. So how do we get there? 
<laughs> really, because, and I know that's probably like, there's a complex answer, but is there any guidance you can give to our listeners to really help them set on a more intentional path when it comes to, to money? Because I think there's a lot of emotion around it. There's a lot of stuff that we carry around money. And I think, and I even think about this for myself in a way, and there's been like, if I look at my life, I've earned more money than I ever expected to earn in my lifetime. I've also lost more money than I ever <laughs> expected to lose in my lifetime. So it's kind of, depending on what day you catch me on, I can feel very differently about money, even though I'm awake and aware to, like you say, this, some of the subliminal messages. I think they're very deep rooted. And I come from poverty. I like my parents had nothing we had we didn't even have food in the cupboard like it really was rough and so you know there's a lot of talk about scarcity mindset and abundancy mindset and for me I do think about the energy of money as well and I'd love to get a sense of like what can help people in this okay. space there's two things that can help and it has to do again, culturally, where we're taught, you want to do things on your own, you need to stand up for yourself, <laughs> you need to be independent, and all the rest of this BS. Uh, that's the salty language right there. Uh, <laughs> um, and what I'm getting at is, what I learned most importantly, is that wealth creation is a team sport, not a solo sport. I did not create this wealth by myself. And when I built up a pension administration company, I didn't do that by myself. When we sold it to a public company and I got a lot of money, I didn't do it by myself. By the way, I lost most of that money um, because I didn't have these foundations that you and I are speaking about. So I said, there are two things. And one of them is wealth creation is a team sport, not a solo sport. When you have these feelings, who are you able to talk to? You want to have someone who understands what's going on that you can have these conversations with and they can get you back on the right track. That's the advantage of you being a coach and you having clients. Those clients are able to speak to you. You are a part of their team and that's crucial. And most coaches that I know who are successful, they also have a coach in the same way psychologists have a psychologist or a therapist they can talk to. As a matter of fact, it's required by law. Yes. Okay. So when you start to look at some of these things, you recognize how it works. And this is a little bit off track, but not completely because it illustrates the team concept that I'm talking about. Now, uh, you've heard of Elon Musk, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, do you think Elon Musk knows about building cars? Probably not, but that's right. <laughs> I know no. he doesn't. <laughs> he admits he knows nothing about building cars, but he doesn't need to because of the team that he has at Tesla. Right. Okay. Now, um, you've heard of Warren Buffett, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you know who Charlie Munger is? Yes. <laughs> okay. So you're one of the few people who knows about Charlie Munger. Now, most people, when I ask that question, they say, well, I think I've heard the name. I don't really know who he is. He's half of Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. 
He is Warren Buffett's partner. Now, Warren Buffett would be given the label visionary. And Charlie Munger would be given the label execution master. He executes on Warren's vision. And it's the same thing with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak of Apple Computer. They have a team, they were a team. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs has passed away, but the point is one has a vision, one that can execute on the vision. And in the most successful companies, you see this, you don't see one person running the whole show and making all the decisions and taking all the actions. Right. It's a team approach. That's what creates wealth in, in corporations in this country. And, you know, you could talk about um, uh, Bill Gates. You, I mean, I don't care who you're talking about. They are not solopreneurs. Right. They have a team. And it's the same thing for you and I. When we have a team, we prosper. And like I said, I didn't create this wealth by myself. I had a realtor friend and my wife my third wife, my best wife, my most wonderful wife. We've been together for 24 years. She was one of my partners in creating this wealth along with the realtor. And so all I'm getting at is there are two things. And one of them that I mentioned is it's a team approach. And the second thing is understanding the attitudes wealthy people have. I talk about their three secrets to wealth. And one of those secrets is attitude. And I'll give you an example of some attitudes. You know, we, we talked about wealthy people are not a talk about money. That's one of those attitudes. Another one is wealthy people ask questions when they hear familiar information instead of making statements. So uh, Jane, let me put you on the spot. Okay. That's an example. Uh, now I know you'll know this answer. Uh, have you heard of the expression, pay yourself first? Yes. Yes. Now, can you explain it? Can I explain it? I yeah. think I, yeah, before, so be, so in, instead of waiting for the profit that's left at the end of the month, quarter or year, I need to be very clear about what, you know, value myself first and then pay myself first. And that becomes part of the cost base of the business rather than just uh, waiting for whatever's left at the end. <laughs> Yes, and that's half of the story. Okay. <laughs> now, the money that you're paying yourself first with, what are you doing with that? Uh, it just goes into my joint bank account. <laughs> okay. With my husband. That's, that's the second half, and that's the missing piece. Hmm. So in a book called The Richest Man in Babylon that was written well over 100 years ago, it talks about when you pay yourself first, it's not just paying yourself the money so you can pay your bills. It's paying yourself money that you will keep for the rest of your life. Oh. That will never get spent on anything other than investments will, that will grow in value. Mm. And in the book, they talk about 10%. You set aside 10% that you will keep for the rest of your life. It will never go to the bills. It's not going to go to a vacation. It's not going to go to anything else, but that's the money that you will use to make investments that will grow in value. So you can choose to work instead of have to work. Mm. That's, and the reason I bring this up is because wealthy people, when they hear familiar information, like, Oh, I've heard of the expression, pay yourself first. That's not new to me. 
Um, maybe even they'll say, I've done that. That's, that's a poor person approach, making a statement when they hear familiar information. The attitude of a wealthy person is they ask questions like, hmm, how does that apply to me? Or uh, where would I put the money? Or who can support me with this? Or when will I begin that practice? Mm -hmm. The wealthy person asks questions. That's an attitude that if people adopt can transform their lives. Hmm. I love that because it's so simple. Yes. None of the, I mean, none of this is complicated. Yeah. It may not be easy, but it right. is absolutely simple. It's so interesting because it reminds me of a conversation I'm having with my 20 year old son at the moment. And this conversation is around his future and it's around money and mindset. And one of the things I noticed, and I talked to him about this uh, last weekend, was, you know, I wanted him to come away from the employee mindset, as I just named it, and said, Jacob, I want you to start to think from an investment perspective, start thinking about how you're investing in your future. And I wasn't just talking about money there, I was also talking about skills, and how he could become more valuable you know, to society, to an employee, if he's going to stay in that track for now. But one of the things I notice is even as a business owner that's been incredibly successful, I still feel occasionally tethered to this employee mindset, which just means a very small mindset to me about money and I think of it as money in kind of money out. And I don't think about what you've just described necessarily. It's not natural to me to think about how I invest money. Now, I do have some investments, but that feels kind of, they feel distant. They, I feel detached from them. And my husband kind of deals with it. So I love what you're describing here because this feels very alive for me at the moment and very alive for my son. But is that something that do you describe it in a different way for yes. young people, particularly? Yes. And, and the way that I talk about it is exactly what you're experiencing in terms of, you know, how you're feeling at various mm. times. And the reason for it is our educational system, the schools are designed. Now, if you were working in an auto plant, you know, the, the workers are there and they're putting all the pieces together at the end of the day is to produce an automobile. Right. The school system at the end of the day is designed to manufacture or produce employees. Mm. It is not designed to produce entrepreneurs or employers. And so culturally, what you've been brought up in is a structure designed to have you think of yourself as an employee. You are designed by the school system as a product to work for another company and not have the mindset of being of value to people, but of being of value to your employer. Right. And again, these are the subconscious biases and, and the subtle messages well, it's not even a subtle message. It's not a message given at all. <laughs> right. 
but that's what the school systems are designed to produce. Now you'll find pockets where, you know, in Harvard, they teach about entrepreneurship uh, or MIT, they, they, they have programs on uh, entrepreneurship, but those are the rarities. Mm. That's not what most people are brought up into. Yeah, but even then, I mean, I remember when I became very wealthy and I didn't know what to do with it. And, and I, I had no idea. And I see that with my clients as well, my very successful clients. They end up, they may sell a business or or part of a business or whatever, and they end up with this kind of like huge amount of money, like almost an unimaginable amount of money. And then just kind of sit with it and go, now what? And then I notice another thing that comes up when you do find yourself with a lot of money is the fear of losing it. That's what I remember is it's really around like the money I have, like I like the loss aversion that we have, the, the cognitive bias around. Now I have it. My energy goes into maintaining it. And it's almost like a there is a freedom in not having that I remember that is different to the having. And then there's a stress in the not having but there's still a stress in the having. <laughs> so but, it's yeah. fascinating to me, this whole like. <laughs> well, I mean, think of it. I mean, it makes sense. If you haven't been taught about money, if you haven't been taught about investments, if these right. are things you've not learned, of course you would have a fear about losing it because you haven't been prepared to handle it effectively and to know what to do with it. And when you're making the investments, it's uncomfortable and there's fear involved and it makes perfect sense because none of us have been taught in those areas. And even with the education that I have, I, and, and it's funny, the reality doesn't necessarily change the feelings. Mm. And I'll give you a good example. Um, I, I have this fear also of, you know, something could go wrong and I could lose money. And at the same time, when we had the pandemic, uh, out of my insecurity, we had enough money in, in cash and savings that we could go for two years and pay all of our bills if no tenants paid their rent if no investments paid dividends, if none of our interest came in from other investments or money or the loans that we made, if no income came in, we could still go for two years and pay all of our expenses. That's how insecure I am. During those two years, 100% of our tenants have paid 100% of their rent through the entire pandemic with one exception and she moved out. Wow. So you, you'd say, wait a second. The reality is our income didn't change. All our investments paid. We got our interest checks every single month from our loans through the whole pandemic. So the reality is we didn't lose $1 of revenue income, but I still had this fear that, well, what if? So it doesn't necessarily go away. And the reality of our feelings doesn't necessarily match the reality of what's going on. But the feelings are real. And what's going on is also real. And it's a balancing act. Yeah. I really hear that when you say that. 
And, you know, I'm sure there's people listening to us talking right now that are thinking, well, that's okay for you, but just like your gardener, like you described, there's people right now that have suffered through the pandemic that are still struggling to get ground underneath their feet again. And now here we are heading into, uh, you know, inflation. We've got food prices going up. Just the very cost of living is becoming a challenge for so many of us. I mean, what kind of advice can you give those people? Yeah, I mean, the statistic that I heard is the average increase due to inflation for most families is an additional $350 a month. And and if someone's living on, you know, a couple thousand or $3,000 a month, $350, let's say they make $3,500 a month, $350 a month is... 10% more of their income that just went away due to inflation. Yeah. And so the advantage is our gardener is is working with enough people. He can raise his rates. The employee can't increase his paycheck. Mm. And so that's where it gets to, you have to look at what's really important. Is buying a big screen TV really important? Uh, Is having a subscription to uh, pay TV channels really important? Um, Are you you willing to give up some of the discretionary items you purchase, whether it's uh, movie tickets, uh, whether it's going to baseball games, you know, you end up having to evaluate these things. And there's three categories that you look at. You look at the fixed expenses, and some of those can even be changed. You look at your variable expenses, like the utility bills, cut back on the amount of electricity used, cut back on the amount of water that you use, um, cut back on your phone usage, change your phone plan, things of that nature. And then there's the discretionary, the items you have complete control over. How many times a week are you going to meals out? Can you buy more groceries and cook more often at home? I mean, all of those things can be looked at if you know how. Mm. And again, this is the stuff that most people are not taught. You know, as an example, even though there's a great example. I had one of my um, interviews on my podcast was with Mike Michalowicz, who wrote a book called Profit First. And he speaks about how he had sold his business for millions of dollars, and, and he'd done this more than once, and he thought he had the Midas touch until he lost everything from the sale of those businesses. And his eight-year-old daughter comes to him when he finally tells his family, we have nothing now. And she offers him her piggy bank to help out. That's what woke him up to the fact he didn't know how to handle money. And he's got seven books out now. And one of his best books, I think, is Profit First. This is who I interviewed on my podcast. And what I'm getting at is, a lot of folks, doesn't matter how much money they make when they sell their business, doesn't mean they know how to handle money. They knew how to make it. They didn't know what to do with it. It's endemic. Yeah. No, I, I, I you know, I, I think that, I mean, you said something right there at the beginning, you know, you're not alone 
in this. And I think that's so true. And just that in itself feels very empowering. But I also want to ask you, um, you know, for people that feel like they're in survival and they're following those three categories that you've just done there, is it possible for them to build wealth? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I think early on, I learned these concepts and also had support in a 12-step program that was called Debtors Anonymous. And what I'm getting at is it's not just about the knowledge. It's also about the support. I mean, they follow the AA model where someone who's a couple steps ahead of you helps the people who are coming in. And and you need to realize if this 12-step model can keep someone from killing themselves over alcohol, it might be a very well-designed model to help in other areas. And it does. It helps people who have narcotic addictions. It helps people who have financial issues, uh, you know. So if you have support, and it can come from a coach, it doesn't have to come from a 12-step program. It can come from your neighbor. It can come from a family member who has alignment with your values. Now, most people say, well, I can't ask my wife to help me. We don't agree on anything. Well, okay, fine. Then that's not who you ask to help. You know, I can't talk to my parents. I can't talk to my brother. He makes fun of me. Well, right. You know who it won't work with. That doesn't mean you can't find someone who it will work with as a team member. And as a matter of fact, when I had a book publishing company, one of the first books we published, it wasn't one of, it was the first book we published out of 80 titles. It was called Couples and Money. And it's how a husband and wife get on the same page financially and discover the different attitudes that their partner has so they can have safe conversations around money. Mm. That's an interesting word you're using there, safe conversations around money. What do you mean by that? Well, because blame and anger in conversations doesn't move anything forward. Mm. It just polarizes the situation, which is, you know, obviously it's happening in our economy with the political parties. They're very polarized. They're not willing to talk about where they're coming from and what's important to them and what they want. They're just saying, here's what needs to be done. And it's the same thing in a marriage. When when one of the spouses is saying, here's what we need to do, they don't have buy-in from the other spouse. They don't know where the other spouse is coming from. They don't know how the other spouse was raised. They don't know what they saw as how their parents handled money, um, whether they felt they were rich or poor, whether they're acting like their mother or father. But this book allows for those conversations so they can get on the same team. They can row in the same direction and they're not fighting each other. Or they recognize, like in my first marriage, we shouldn't be married anymore. Yeah. And that seems to me a really important concept around money is is this idea of safety, feeling safe enough to have the conversations, feeling safe enough to really look at the reality of your finances, feeling safe enough to actually, you know, change your behaviors, move into action, do something differently than what you've done before. And I've never really considered that before, but I feel a lot of us feel very unsafe around money and powerless when Mm -hmm. it comes to 
our own personal finances. And I know we've talked about all the different reasons in our culture why that might be the case, but I think that's a really important realization in terms of helping people feel more empowered around money. That feels really important to me, Rennie. And, and, it, and it is because without the support, without feeling empowered, people will remain stuck. Yeah, yeah. And it, there's something else that's, that's coming up for me at this kind of stage in our conversation, which is very often when I think about money, I think of it from an individual perspective. And now I know this is just kind of me, but I think there's a lot of us that do that. But here you are, you've, you've mastered money, you're building, you've built a wealth base, which means you're now able to contribute to worthy causes, to things that really matter to you. You know, you can have an impact in ways potentially you couldn't when you didn't have the money. And so what I love about the way this conversation is kind of flowing is that money is not, you're not just doing this for yourself. You're not necessarily just doing this for your, your family and your friends and your inner circle. There can also be a, a bigger mission here. Would you speak a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting too, because when I um, started this process about seven years ago of teaching other people how to handle money effectively, mm -hmm. I did not have a philanthropic uh, piece to it. And it, after about six months of doing this, I said, this is a lot of work. I'm not having a good time. Uh, I think I will stop doing this because I don't have to. I don't need the money from it. Right. And it was at that point, my wife, who happened to have been the chairperson of a charitable foundation as a division of Berkshire Hathaway, said, Rennie, someone on the board brought to my attention this charity that rescues dogs and trains them as service animals for soldiers who've come back with traumatic brain injuries, with post-traumatic stress disorder, and the suicide rate among returning soldiers is almost one an hour. It's 23 a day. And not one who's received the service dog has committed suicide. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, a charity that one is rescuing dogs, so they're not being euthanized by the thousands, and saving soldiers' lives who might've committed suicide, every dollar is saving two lives at a time. I love this. And I started donating to that charity. And the more money I donated, the happier I felt. And that gave me a reason to continue this business. It was finding that cause, that charity, whatever you want to call it, that spurred me on to continuing to make money in a business that I would have otherwise given up. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're speaking there to something that's very dear to my heart here at Sacred Changemakers is this idea that we're here to make a, an impact, to make a difference in some way, whether it's small or large, we're here to do that. And I totally agree with you. When I brought a social impact element to my business and the contributions and donations that we do, it's the reason that gets me out of bed in the morning. It's the, it's, 
it's no longer become just about myself and my clients. It's about what difference can we make in the world? And I actually believe now this is the future of business. I believe this is this is a business can be a vehicle for not only doing well for the individual in our world, but also for doing good in our world and helping those less fortunate than ourselves. And I think, you know, if if your own person, if you're listening to this in your own personal life is not enough of a reason for whatever reason for you to really understand money and wealth, I think this could be a great expression of what matters most to you. You could do it for others too. So I love the way you've framed money and wealth about it's it's not something you can do by yourself. And it's not also, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you're the only beneficiary of <laughs> either. So I really, really love that, Benny. I do. Because it reframes everything for me in that uh, way. I'm so glad, Jane, because mm. uh, exact, what you're saying is so accurate. And more and more people are recognizing they want to do business with those entities, people, who are making an impact beyond themselves. Uh, yeah. Whether you're buying a pair of shoes and that company is donating a pair of shoes for everyone that's purchased, it, it, wherever you're looking, people are attracted and want to do business with the companies that are having an impact on the planet and a positive impact. Yeah. And so I, I want to ask you about one of the things I think about in this space is is like my definition of wealth over different decades of my life has changed, it's shifted. And I'd love to get a sense of what's your definition of like true wealth? What does that mean? Well, there's two aspects of wealth and one is the financial and the other is the internal in mm -hmm. terms of um, your emotional health, in terms of your relationships and in, in, in those ways. And so, um, when I talk about wealth, I'm talking about the holistic picture of wealth. It, you're right. It's not just about money, but I have a fabulous relationship uh, with my wife, with extended family members, with my children, with my grandchildren. I have my health. I remember my mother telling me, you know, you can't buy good health. So I do concentrate on how I take care of myself. And we have, have the money. So when it talks about wealth, even if I had no money, I have two out of three if I didn't have the money and I'd still feel wealthy. Yeah. It's nice to have the money in addition. Yeah, I do. And, and I'm totally with you because I believe that, you know, money in and of itself really hasn't got any value. But when you bring it into life, it creates more choices. And that's one of the things that I know is if if we can build a wealth base, it's just a vehicle for being able to have more choices in life, really. And it's so funny because a lot of people talk about creating financial freedom mm -hmm. and it's so overused. And what I ended up uh, creating as a registered trademark was the term complete financial choice. Oh, yeah. That's what it's all about. You choose to work or choose not to work. You choose to donate to charity or you choose to travel. The point of the money is it gives you complete financial choice. 
Yeah. And I'm also getting a sense from you, um, and this is kind of like underneath our conversation in a way, but it's almost like it doesn't matter who you are or what situation financially you find yourself in right now. The message I'm, the subliminal message I'm, I'm hearing from you, Benny, is that you can, you can oh. do this. Oh, absolutely. Hey. Start where you are and with what you've got and you, you can build from there. <laughs> absolutely. I, I failed high school math. <laughs> okay. So I look at it from the standpoint of, oh my gosh, if I can do it, anybody can. And it's one of the things that I do is for every tenant that moves into our properties, I give them a copy of my book when they sign the lease forms. And I've had tenants who've moved out of our properties and bought homes. One tenant moved out and bought a, a three unit property as for income. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not coming from a scarcity mentality about, well, what happens if my tenants move? Let them move, let them create wealth for themselves. Believe me, there's enough people who still want to move into my properties that I'm, I'm going to be doing fine. And so every single tenant gets a copy of my book and some of them take action on it. Oh, I love that. That ripple effect that you're creating in the world just there by that very thing is to me, that's, that's true wealth because it's not trying to ring fence it and hold it all for myself. There's an openness there. How can I inspire others? into this space so that we can move forward together or however you want to shape it. But I love that you do that because to me, that's the, the mark of, of true wealth and a true leader. So that's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Jane. So I'm noticing the time and I just want to ask you one final question. If there's something that you would have wanted to cover today that maybe we haven't had time to to kind of get around to, or maybe some words of wisdom that you'd just like to leave for our audience, what might it be? Um, it would probably be the difference between being rich versus being wealthy. Mm. And what I'm getting at is rich is what you see. It's the clothing someone buys. It's the jewelry they may be wearing. It's the car they could be driving. Um, so you can see if someone's making a lot of money but wealth is what you don't see. You don't know what stocks they own in their portfolio, what real estate they have, how large their business is. That's the wealth you don't see. And so when people look at me, they have no idea that I'm wealthy. I drive a 16 year old car. Most of the time I'm on a 20 year old motorcycle. Um, I, I'm, you, you, you know, if this is not video, the people who don't know I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt uh, that I wear almost every day, a different one, not the same one, people don't see my wealth and I don't need to show it to them. That is so insightful. Rennie, thank you so much for stopping by the Sacred Changemakers podcast. I have so enjoyed our conversation today and I know our listeners will have learned so much from you. And of course, they can find all your contact details in the show notes. So thank you so much for your it, time it today. My, it was my pleasure to be here, Jane. You do a wonderful job. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Thank you. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. 
Before we go, I want to remind you that all of the resources and the links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. And a big thank you to the members of our Soul Business Academy, who are our podcast sponsors, and to the extended community who are helping us make a global impact, all aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if you're looking for more soul in your life and business, if you like have a sense that you have a calling, maybe you're here to make a bigger impact or simply connect with others on your change-making journey. If our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. But for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intention and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.